have an obligation to Simon's Rock that's different from the obligation of other college graduates. This is a school apart. This is a college apart. It doesn't have a large endowment. It didn't graduate a lot of tycoons of industry. It struggles every year. And it merits and deserves your support as you go through life. This is not a plea for money, because I know you have none. But, um... <laughs> It is a plea to remember the place, not to forget it, not to forget what it has done for you. That was Leon Botstein, president of Simons Rock and Bard College, speaking at commencement last spring. Leon was on campus recently as conductor of the Orchestra Now, and the Anomaly team was able to sit down with him to discuss music, Simons Rock, and the liberal arts. Stick around to hear about the direction Leon is taking our school. background. So you're a renowned conductor. You've been at the helm of the American Symphony Orchestra, the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, and you regularly conduct orchestras around the world. But from all these experiences, what would you say that you enjoy most about conducting? You know, I'm not sure that uh, that enjoyment is the right way to describe it. Uh, if you have a vocation or a profession, you're somehow called to it, that is to say. It becomes an essential part of your life. And I enjoy my work. And it's, it's funny, I don't think of it in terms of enjoying it. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. But when I think, what do I enjoy about conducting is pretty simple, is making music, in other words, making music with other people. And making the music in a way that you think is distinctive or worth hearing, and that you're not doing something that somebody else is doing, actually, that there is an element of innovation, an element of distinctiveness about the music making. So I, I enjoy the experience of realizing sound and then communicating it uh, to a public, a different kind of public. So whether you conduct, for example, with an audience that is used to you, you know, it comes on a regular basis to hear you, or you're in an audience that you ne don't know at all. That happens when you travel abroad, for example. I have a concert in London and with the Royal Philharmonic, and I've never worked with the Royal Philharmonic. I don't know who the audience will be. So that's, a, that's one kind of experience. Uh, I'll be in Mexico in November, for example, conducting in Mexico City. I have a different kind of relationship with that city. I will be in Caracas with the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, also in November. And so, in different places, it's a different dynamic, but it's the same issue. Can you deliver something that you think is of value and of importance that someone else won't do, or does, let's say, differently, in a way that, that uh, enriches someone's experience or life? I mean, that's, that's what it's about. And I, I have a, a deep, unbreakable attachment to the language of music, if you will, if you can call music a language, which I'm not sure you can, but to the communicative power of music, the expressive power of music. And uh, so it is a, a matter of life and death to be able to do it. So enjoy is an odd word, and it doesn't actually correspond to the 
gravity unless you take the famous phrase of Seneca, which I love to quote, that true joy is a serious thing. But most people don't, when you think about enjoy, there's a kind of um, ease to that, which music is a struggle, and it's a, you wrestle with it all the time. I agree. I really do think music is a struggle, and it does change form. That being said, what do you want your audience to come away with after a performance? So a concert doesn't bear a resemblance to a lecture. If you give a lecture, you have an idea of what you want the people listening to get. You're making an argument. And uh, I, I think music is more indeterminate in, on some level. So I don't have a particular argument I want you as the listener to take away with. I do want to interrupt the pattern of your experience so you focus on the music. And the music makes some kind of difference to you, the hearing of it. What that difference is, is unpredictable. That depends mostly on you. In my view, a performance is completed by the listener. Performance is only as good as what you bring to it. You can bring many things to it. You can bring the fact that you're struggling with a lot of issues and somehow that concentrated recalibration of time which music creates, especially instrumental music, like the works we're doing today, which are written in the 18th, early 19th centuries. These are works which use music as a kind of rhetorical, almost logical system of communication that recalibrates your experience of time away from clock time. And in that space, your imagination can roam quite freely. So the question is, can you, through the hearing of music, connect somehow with something that's significant in the way you conduct your life. So that's what I'd like to be able to do. So it doesn't simply go by you. You know, it stops you, it gets your attention. But then what, what you inscribe in that space when it gets your attention, we don't control. That's what's nice about music. Not nice, but that's what's special about music, especially instrumental music. It doesn't tell a specific story. It doesn't communicate specific images. It doesn't correspond to an external reality. Yet it's absolutely logical, it is consequential within itself, it has a syntax, a grammar, it has rhetoric. And, um, but you fill in its connective tissue to your own existence in some way. So I'd like to, I'd like the, in that sense, the performance to be memorable. You said before that concert music finds itself in a strange place. So audience interest is declining, yet the number of people learning to play is rising. Given this, what would you say is the current role of concert music? It's a good question. A good question. I don't know because the education about the orientation of the history, people can do that using, you know, there's so much on the internet, so much on YouTube, there's so much recorded, um, which is a snapshot, not music really, but so much reference material available. I think the concert is not so much educative, uh, as it is, um, I think the musical experience has to be heard in real time and real space. So recording is not music. So the concert experience has to give you a, a, a mixture of an emotional, intellectual, and personal experience that you feel has added to your life. It's a form of life. It expands you, who you are. And that's not really educative, but it becomes an essential part of 
the way you contemplate your life and think about your life. So I can't think about my life apart from music. So music becomes integrated as a form of life and how I think about the essential questions of meaning. So you want to do that through the concert experience uh, to people who are not musicians. There are a lot of people who, for whom the listening to music and to the, th- the memory of music and the experience of that recalibrated time, which one sits in the audience and one experiences a concert or an opera, for example, that something happens to them that they want to relive. Great. Let's talk about Simon's Rock now. You've been the president of Simon's Rock since 1979 for 36 years. You've seen it change over these years. Where do you think we are heading and where do you see Simon's Rock in 10 years? I think that 10 years from now, if all goes well, Simon's Rock would be um, a little bigger than it is now. So it would be probably between four and 500 students. BA student number would be more or less the same as it is now, maybe a little larger. The junior and senior year together would make up 100, right? And the rest of Simon's Rock would be relatively evenly distributed between what is now the academy, uh, the ninth and 10th grades would be perhaps a little smaller, maybe 150 students. Then the first and second year of college would be the largest population. So it would be kind of a curve in which the, the academy would be, in a way, the primary, not the only, but the primary point of entrance into the early college. So that Samazak would be the premier and the residential early college and like the Bar- high school early colleges around the country, of which there are now seven, the entrance point would be a natural one after the eighth grade. But you could come to it after the tenth grade as well. So it would be a multiple entry point, but the primary source of, of enrollment ten years from now will be, should be, through the academy, although you could still come in. Because I think the plausibility of recruiting larger number of students out of high school who want to leave high school is a decreasingly plausible proposition. The times have changed. Once people get into a high school, they're reluctant to leave it. That wasn't the case 30 years ago. And so for some sort to flourish, it has to have a natural inflection point with the educational system as it is. Furthermore, I think that Simon's Rock will thrive because the high school early college movement, the early college movement in the public sector, has gained a lot of strength. And we are, in a way, all grateful to Simon's Rock because they actually provided the basic technical model and educational model uh, for the success of the Bard High School Early Colleges. We just opened one in Baltimore. Uh, we have one in Cleveland. We're going to open a second one in Cleveland in 2017. We have one in Newark. We have two in New York City. Three, actually, and one in New Orleans. And um, we're looking at Philadelphia and Atlanta to expand, too. So, and there's a growing national sentiment for it, which will benefit Simon's Rock. So I see it to be a larger institution um, with six levels of instruction, not four. But with the academy, it has added two, which I think will be an important 
source of security for the college. The other thing I would think that's different is that the college will probably have much more investment in areas that connect computation, science, design, problem solving, where there'll be a lot more that allows students during the college years to merge theory with practice, that the liberal arts will be connected uh, much more with equipping students with the means of problem solving in a way, uh, using the analytical skills. Uh, and that, of course, 10 years from now, I suspect that computation will have a much larger role in the conduct of, of, of study. Besides age, what do you see as the biggest difference between Bard and Simon's Rock students? I think that characterizations of students, student bodies are suspect. I rather think of student bodies as aggregates of individuals. In other words, I think people in institutions want to adduce a common characteristic to a group, all Jews, all Asian Americans, all Catholics, and that goes to institutions, all Harvard people, all Princeton people. They're like that, they're like this. I, 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 I'm a little allergic to that kind of thinking. I've never had a coherent image of the Bard student. I've seen so many different Bard students, you know, uh, doing so many different things, being different people, believing different things, having different attitudes and different interests. I can't actually describe that typical Bard student, the dominant Bard student. I can tell you what Bard's conceits are, but that's but they are conceits about, you know, aspects of mythology and school pride, but they're not actually real. Now, Bard is a terrific place, in my view, because it has a very high measure of idealism about the importance of learning and the intellectual tradition. And is a pioneer, you know, in the connection of learning to social service. Bard does a lot in the public interest, and that does inspire students to come to it. Students are interested in, in the arts, in social service, in the environment, in science. But, you know, we have 7,300 applications. Uh, we have 500 places. <clears throat> so the diversity of, the, of those applicants is very, very wide. And uh, it reflects itself in the student body. Now, at Simon's Rock, the big differences are that it's likely that the Simon's Rock students are going to have a higher premium on their own individuality because they've taken an unusual step. The students at Bard chose Bard at the moment where they were going to go to college. So it's not the age, you're right, it's not the age that makes them that makes the Simon Talk student different. It is the decision to start college early, to break the pattern. And that decision, not the age itself, is a self-selection. So Bard has wonderful students who applied to college, and Bard was one of those colleges. They decided to go to Bard. They had a choice to go anywhere they wanted, most of them. Most of our students have multiple choice, and they decided to come to Bard. That's an important choice, but less of a significant choice than deciding to leave high school. So I would say what distinguishes a Simon's Rock student is some greater premium on risk-taking um, and a kind of... a eagerness to define oneself and one's personality. So that, I think, is, is, is probably uh, a distinguishing characteristic. 
And it's interesting that the Simon's Rock BAs that have done very well, have done spectacularly well. The ones that have gone on to, whether they've done their BAs here or they've done a BA elsewhere, those that go into science are often really well equipped to um, define important research projects. Uh, There are people like Ellie Pariser who become very innovative in what they do, or John McWhorter. And so this habit of stepping out of the mold is becomes, in a way, the best part of that Simon's Rock, I think, successfully nurtures, and they continue to do that. So there's some difference between the Simon's Rock student and the, um, and the Bard student, not in, in, in interest or ability. could be that the Simon's Rock students develop their self-confidence earlier, than those who just finished high school normally. Are there any pedagogical differences between Simon's Rock and Bard? I would think none. Uh, because there's no, there's no competing pedagogical philosophy. So both institutions believe in, um, in small classes and tutorials and the importance of written work, of close reading, of um, student initiative, uh, have very high standards. I would think none. How would you describe your relationship with Simon's Rock, and how has it changed or not changed over the years? You know, at Simon's Rock, I've always been um, a distant presence because it's important that Simon's Rock be, genuinely be self-governing, you know, that it's not sort of run by absentee owners, if you will. So although we're close by, my relationship is, is, is pretty arm's length, you know, I, um, I'm in touch with whoever is the, is the provost and runs the place and with the sort of senior administrators and many members of the faculty. But I have a very different relationship to Simon's Rock than I have to Bard. In Bard, I'm, I'm actually, you know, in, in the end of the day in charge of what ha- what's happening on that campus. Um, I'm not in this case. You know, I'm, I'm overseeing it from a distance and the responsibility really falls to the the provost, and to some extent also to the, not only the faculty, but also to the, its own board of overseers. And um, so it's, it has developed and sustained an, auto- an autonomous identity. And uh, I, I, um, I interfere with that only rarely. So a lot depends, my relationship is a lot depends on who's running the place. So I, I this is in 79, this is 35 years of uh, being responsible for Simon's Rock. And so it's changed depending on who, who was here as provost. During your tenure as president, Bard has grown to be a diverse family of institutions. This arrangement differs from other educational conglomerates because each institution within the Bard family intervenes with distinct missions that spreads the liberal arts among different populations. For example, the Bard Prison Initiative brings the liberal arts to prisoners, Simon's Rock brings it to younger scholars, and BSEX brings the liberal arts into high schools. What would you say unifies all of the projects that are housed and supported by Bard? I think the, the educational projects that Bard has, both here and abroad, share a commitment to the liberal arts, uh, to the importance of the humanities and the social sciences and the arts, in addition to the sciences. It believes in certain um, importance of organizing a curriculum by problems and not by fields. So it's less, 
strictly organized by disciplines, but is often problem-oriented. Language and thinking is a good example of that. Uh, the first-year seminar is a good example. So there are certain pedagogical commitments that cut through all of what it does, a certain conception of the liberal arts, um, even the process of moderation, the need to do a senior project, in your case called senior thesis. I think there's certain pedagogical intellectual commitments that all the, all the units share, except, of course, the graduate units, which, but they share some of the same philosophy. So the Bard Graduate Center for the Study of Decorative Arts, Design, Material Culture, uh, is an dis- interdisciplinary, innovative, humanities, arts graduate program, unique in the world. So it is the institutions all share a kind of um, intellectual innovativeness and um, focus on the problems rather than the, and the issues rather than a kind of labeled subject matter. Anything else you would like to say to the Simons Rock community? We're very proud of the Simon's Rock community. It's been an integral part of Bard for over 30 years. I have a lot of personal attachment to it. And like any new idea, the innovation that Simon's Rock was in the 1960s and 70s has to, in a way, keep pace with the times. It, it can't stand still. One of the lessons we learned from the difficulties that certain institutions have encountered is uh, that... Um, your basic principles and commitments may remain the same, but the way you get there will change. So take St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a very interesting and admirable place. It formed a very innovative curriculum in the 1930s and 40s, but it has continued to hold on to that you know, in a kind of rigid way and has earned itself difficulty that probably it could have avoided it to some degree by not becoming fashionable, but rethinking the first principles of a fixed curriculum and a kind of great books idea in a way that was that took into account fundamental and positive changes in the world, starting from the expansion of seriousness of consideration of things non-European in a in a curriculum that sort of was about great books. And what about the great books that come from cultures that are not European or North American, that are from Asia? Forget even the issue of books, to expand the idea of great books to include the visual, the musical, the architectural. With, especially with digital means, you can study great architecture in a detailed way without going there. And that opens possibilities. So the idea of a, of a, of a Commons Core Curriculum, which is a very attractive and good one that St. John's pioneered, it did not innovate. It did not have an intellectual ferment. They still held on to beliefs that struck a chord and responded to the political cultural situation of the 1930s. They were still, still doing that in the 50s. So Simon's Rock has to be nervous about that as well. It exploded onto the scene in the 60s, declaring an obvious truth that young people, for biological and social reasons, were mature at an earlier age than in the past, which meant that 18 was too late to start college, that they were developmentally too advanced to be treated like children in school. So that was a terrific insight, and Betty Hall had that insight. 
and she created a school around it. Now, she had a weird idea. She thought she would combine the last years of high school and the first years of college into one. There was no acceleration. So instead of having four years of high school and four years of college, there were two years of high school, four years of in-between something called the early college, and two years of college. So it was two, four, two. That was her idea. Now, it never got off the ground. It was a great idea, but never worked. People need always to study history to be able to know the truth. And she got pushed out, and they brought in Baird Whitlock, and he had a great idea, which was the idea was to do what we now live with, which is to say, okay, take the last year of high school and the first years of college, and instead of making that add up to uh, an AA degree, make that a BA degree. So basically what he did was get rid of the last few years of high school. Just drop it. That became Simon's Rock. And that's what we inherited and have tinkered with and tried to make work. We then discovered, apart from the enrollment issues here, the difficulty of recruiting people out of the 10th grade, you know, taking them out, plucking them out of the high school, that when we were given the chance in 2001 to open the first Bard High School Early College in the public sector, I remembered Betty Hall's insight and realized she was onto something, but maybe in a different way than she thought of it. That actually you couldn't start college early unless you improved the prior preparation. We also knew that the schools in New York, middle school ended at eighth grade. So in order to make it work in the public sector for the disadvantaged, for the poor, in Newark and Cleveland and Baltimore, 90% of our students are from the most underserved and poor population of the inner city. Queens, 50% are on free lunch, nearly, nearly 50%. So fact remains that um, if you're going to do the job, you have to get students at the ninth grade and gear them up so that by the time they reach what would have been the 11th grade of the first year of college, they were able to do the work. And also it made sense because you couldn't plop a, a school that started in the 10th grade into the city system. So we were forced to adapt to the new circumstances to create what we have the Bard High School Early College. We borrowed the insight we had from the first years of college from the two-year program at Simon's Rock that leads to the AA, and then we added something we invented as a ninth and 10th. Now the academy is taking that experience and bringing it back to Simon's Rock as a residential experience, which will help Simon's Rock's overall enrollment picture. So the important thing in, in general is to realize you're, you're onto a good idea, an idea, an important idea that makes an important contribution to the culture and to American education, but you have to watch that idea keeps pace with the real changes in the world. Mrs. Hall's insight is true today. The two of you, at age 16, even at age 15, would and will and have benefited from a much serious attitude to your cognitive and intellectual development than you would have gotten in a normal situation. She's absolutely right. So today's 16, 15 is yesterday's. In the 1920s, it was what people were at 18. It's also a sociological reason. You're, you, you're treated as a consumer. Um, if you look at the 
all the data are unreliable as it is about the onset of sexual activity. It is also younger. So the whole societal framework, when you get your first credit card, when you're viewed by the external world as a consumer in your own right, whether it's Hollywood or the clothing industry or the soft drink industry. You put those things together, the current high school system is, is inadequate. So a basic good idea, similar to the idea that St. John's had, which is a college shouldn't be just a collection of courses, but should be a coherent curriculum with an argument, great idea. Maybe not every college, but there should be colleges like that. They got stuck with one solution for it, just as we shouldn't get stuck with one solution of what the curriculum should be or, or what the entrance point should be or how we should solve the problem of providing a better education to young people at an earlier age. So there'll be changes, and changes have to do with the introduction of computation, digital stuff, changing the entrance point. And people shouldn't react viscerally against change. Change isn't good just because it's change. But neither is holding on to an imagined stasis the way it used to be. I always get nervous when people say, well, it was much better in the past, in the old days. All that tells me is that the person's power of perceptions have declined. Or they're looking at the wrong thing. So the two of you as undergraduates look very different from your counterparts when I was an undergraduate. But your external appearance may hide a fundamental similarity about your ambitions, your abilities, your, your wonderment at being students. You may actually be the same. So if I am a Simons Rock graduate from 1985, and I look at you and I say, I, I don't recognize you. Well, you're looking for the wrong thing because the similarities are not about clothing. They're not about manner of dress. They're not about external signs. They're deeper continuities. So my concern is when people resist change is that they may be fighting a superficial discontinuity that preserves a deeper continuity between past and present. So all the changes going on at Simon's Rock are about actually reconnecting and sustaining a very deep continuity to the original mission of Simon's Rock. That certainly puts the recent changes into perspective. Well, thank you, Leon, for sitting down with us. We very much appreciate it. And we would also like to thank our audience for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for future programming, please let us know by emailing dmateos12 at simonsrock.edu. We want to know what you want to hear. Thanks again and look out for future podcasts.